You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations from authors, scholars and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes and whatever platform you might be listening from. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. I don't know if there's any questions that you have before we begin, Brett. Um, no, I think we're pretty good. Um, my wife's American. She's coached me on what to say and what not to say, and I can't swear and uh, I can't do a few other things. So it'll be a, it'll be a qualified Australian performance. Okay. <laughs> Where is your way from? Uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Last time they were in um, the went to the Super Bowl and played at the Super Bowl, um, I was getting minute by minute tweets from my wife. She was um, working somewhere else at the time and uh, I was in a, a classified space. So I had to go outside and come back in and go outside <laughs> and come back in. It was very stressful Super Bowl for me. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today for uh, this episode of SpyCast. And I know that it's Australia Day um, where you are now. so. Forgive my ignorance. I'm not sure what you're meant to say. I don't know if you say Happy Australia Day or what the custom is. Well, um, it's a little bit of a contentious issue in Australia at the moment, and there's an argument for shifting the date and um, righting the wrongs of the past. But I look at it more simply as um, uh, a nation with great diversity um, identifying itself as one on at least one day of the year. So that's how I approach Australia Day. So um, uh, happy Australia Day is pretty good. And what what are you up to today? How are you uh, celebrating or taking part in Australia Day? Um, well, I saw a fantastic quote last week and it said something to the effect that um, uh, science will will get us um, out of um, the COVID crisis, but art will get us through the crisis. So today we're going to the art gallery to see a famous Australian watercolorist, impressionist. Um, um, and then we're going to have um, a lunch in the middle of the park and enjoy a very, very sunny and warm Australia day. Well, I'm thrilled to be speaking to you today um, on Australia Day and I think the best place to start maybe then is 
how did you get involved in this world to begin with? Well, uh, I first started when I was in the military. Um, I had um, was training to become a pilot in the military and army aviation, and I wasn't a very good pilot, so it suggested to me that I pursue another career in the military. And uh, I had been fascinated from what I'd heard about um, the intelligence, military intelligence business. So I stuck my hand up. And uh, in 1978, I um, transferred into the Australian Army's Intelligence Corps. So that was the beginning, um, more by accident. In, in fact, my career, intelligence career, has seemed to have been a series of unfortunate accidents, actually. Um, but they've certainly worked in my favour, and I've enjoyed serendipity. I always feel a bit um, sad for these people who plan their careers out in enormous detail and um, it's uh, it's classic uh, retrospective appearance. You, you you look back and you can only make sense of it looking backwards. I could never imagine myself being here um, 42 years ago. So I look back and I find that curiosity uh, is a key quality um, that's favoured in the intelligence business. I've seen it with my own analysts, but when I reflect on my career, I see a strong sense of curiosity and uh, a need for some form of structured approach to peer into the unknown and make sense of it. So we'll, we'll return to your role uh, in military intelligence in a minute, but for um, our listeners who are not familiar with the Australian intelligence landscape, could you just give the, our listeners a primer, maybe related to the American intelligence landscape so that they have something to compare it to? Is it, is it similar? Is it different? Um, just, just walk us through the various agencies and and what it looks like from where you're sitting? Well, we have had some changes. So we had an independent review of the intelligence community conducted in um, 2017, and that was quite influential. It stressed that um, the community uh, was working well. Uh, there were, um, and at an agency level, things were terrific. But what we needed was to work um, uh, better together as um, and we I grew up with a concept in the intelligence business of a community but a community also introduces a, a lot of tribalism so um, um, 2017 suggested that we formed a national intelligence enterprise and um, we're bringing an enterprise perspective where um, agencies aren't just individually excellent that they work together as an enterprise to make the enterprise excellent as well. And that's been the philosophy since 2017. We appointed um, a director of national intelligence like the US and it um, stressed issues about breaking out of the community boundary to engage the best of uh, uh, the private sector and the public sector as well. Um, we have um, more agencies in the US at the moment but um, it shouldn't be seen as, it's more of an ecosystem than as a series of hierarchical structures. You, for example, have just added your 17th agency uh, in um, Space Force uh, to um, the community there. Uh, and um, we, we have, it depends on how you count it, uh, about 21 or 22 um, agencies at the national level. There's a distinction between the analytic function and the collection function. Um, there's a single point of contact for advice to um, head of government. Um, very similar, um, uh, as the ties say, same, same but different. 
And and tell us a little bit more about the the culture of Australian intelligence. So it it tends to vary. Um, um, there's not one culture. Uh, and um, for example, um, between different amounts of practice, there are different cultural perspectives between say law enforcement intelligence and say national intelligence. It's um, very different. Um, uh, Law enforcement often has quite hierarchical structures and it's dominated by operations and it hasn't been infused with the intelligence um, work for as long as say the, the national community has. Um, what we're finding here is um, that the, the culture is becoming um, more and more diverse because domains of intelligence practice are growing. Um, for example, uh, I still work with our Institute of Professional Intelligence Officers here in Australia. I'm a fellow of the Institute. Um, our greatest areas of growth in terms of membership are in the regulatory intelligence area and the risk intelligence area, um, which are domains of practice, intelligence practice that didn't exist years ago. So, um, well, certainly not in a formalized way. So there's no one culture. Um, at the national level, um, agent cultures are um, very, very powerful. Some agencies recruit for alignment to that culture, um, which is a strong uh, issue. Some of uh, what you would call three-letter agencies in the States, we'd call four-letter agencies here, and uh, some of those have very, very strong organisational cultures. Um, but uh, the independent review in 2017, as I said, talked about the importance of diversity in the community, particularly diversity of viewpoint. Um, often diversity is narrowly constructed in terms of age or gender or ethnicity, but I think it's far more important to have diversity of viewpoint um, as we as we try to delve in a complex space. And what are some of the main challenges that the Australian intelligence community faces? Well, I think um, certainly in the Five Eyes and, and more broadly globally, everyone's concerned with the threat in cyberspace. And, um, uh, We've heard things, for example, um, there was an acknowledgement uh, last year of having an offensive cyber capability that was made publicly. Um, that wouldn't occur um, 10 years ago. Um, so cyber is near the top. Um, uh, of course, in the Indo-Pacific, um, the rise of China, uh, the contest between um, um, China and the US is quite central to our considerations. Um, we're an island nation. So we're very lucky we don't share um, a physical border with anybody else and that gives us a degree of protection. And certainly in my career, um, a big challenge has been looking for bad guys or looking for threats um, because uh, uh, we haven't had a, a clear and present danger. Uh, of course, um, 10 years ago, we were dealing with um, the issue of terrorism quite close to our borders with Jamar Islamiyah in Indonesia to our north. Terrorism is still an issue. Um, but as we've seen in the last 12 months, some of the greatest threats to national security uh, are transnational and um, biological. In, in COVID, for example, which has had significant nth order effects on national security through our economic well-being, um, the interruption of um, uh, global supply chains, um, I, as I said, I've been working from home from um, uh, since March last year in a very small office. And so the intelligence community is under stress as well. Uh, uh, and if you look at some of the literature coming out of the States at the moment, um, that's an issue uh, 
uh, how to deal with um, uh, a distant workforce, a remote workforce in an intelligence context, the, the SCIF boundaries tend to be a bit impermeable, so it's a, it's a little bit of a challenge. Um, uh, with um, with an island nation, of course, we're also concerned about um, biological threats, um, the security. So that's why the intelligence community, the National Intelligence Enterprise, is so quite diverse. For example, we're concerned about um, um, uh, hostile biological agents entering the company, uh, country through birds and wildlife smuggling and issues 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 such as that. But probably the top of the list is uh, cyber and the rise of China in a national security context. And I mean, you've spoke about the Five Eyes community. Uh, who, who are some of the main partners that Australia works with in the Indo-Pacific region? Well, the the closest Five Eyes partner, of course, is New Zealand, which is um, just a, a couple of hours flight to our east. Um, but geography is uh, less important in a Five Eyes context because the world is um, instantly available to us anywhere through national technical means. Um, so geography is less of an issue. Um, there are, um, for example, I've been very lucky in my career to work in the UK and the US as well um, in an integrated sort of fashion. So we have um, at any one time hundreds of people working around the world in different agencies. For example, um, in Washington at the moment, we have um, uh, uh, th three or four people embedded in agencies. Um, uh, plus our presence in the embassy, of course. And same, same with the other Five Eyes partners. Uh, we have a lot of exchange. Uh, we have Americans embedded in our system, Brits embedded in our system, Kiwis embedded in our system. So in a sense, geography is, is sort of less important in the modern context. What are some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses do you think of, of intelligence as it's practiced in Australia? Well, uh, one of the big strengths, I think, is that um, being a small nation, um, an intelligence officer has to operate right around the um, intelligence cycle, so to speak, from a production sense. There tend to be a lot more generalists here, and we can tend to be quite creative and in it because we're resource constrained. And I saw this at play when I was working in the US, for example, where everybody seemed to be a specialist. Um, and uh, in the UK, when I was working, and particularly when I was deployed into Germany, you know, the um, the real threat in in um, 1982 was just a couple of hundred uh, kilometres to your east, and uh, it was a clear and present danger. So there was a, a different sense of urgency. Um, so I think one of the strengths uh, in Australian intelligence is that um, we're quite versatile, and uh, that we can tend to bend. Uh, our limited resources to um, emerging threats quite quickly. We're, um, uh, we're, because we're a small nation, we can flex more quickly. I mean, 25 million people, it's, it's easy to pivot than if you have 330 million people, for example. Um, the infrastructure is leaner, but um, more streamlined, so to speak. Um, we also uh, have good intelligence programs in the university. Now, when I first started in universities, when I first started, there weren't any such programs. So we're finding that the intelligence approaches 
are permeating more through other domains of practice more quickly. Um, so there's some of the strengths that we have. Also with the Five Eyes Alliance, um, we get uh, enormous virtual capacity that we don't have to build ourselves. Um, by contributing to the Alliance, we get significant benefits from um, the other members of that Alliance. Um, and being, uh, being an island, as I said earlier, um, there's no clear and present um, threat to us, apart from the cyber domain. So uh, we have a, an opportunity to um, probably, probably be a little bit more comfortable than other countries in the world. Um, so there's some of our strengths. Um, some of those are also our weaknesses. Um, Everyone always wants more resources. Um, uh, enormous technical um, debt in legacy systems. Um, very difficult to uh, overcome in the short term. Um, being a smaller, I've always found the smaller the group, the more the politics are intense or more intense the politics. So one downside with being small is um, um, a little bit of tribalism that can limit um, the aspiration of an enterprise approach. Uh, there are some sort of factors. I don't want to stress the weaknesses too much. Don't know who's listening. Sure. Uh, and w one of the other things that I was thinking about uh, in preparation for this interview is that here in the United States and back in the UK, there are there have been these, I guess you could say, internal stressors with, you know, in terms of the context within which the intelligence community inhabits. So here in the United States, uh, without getting into too much detail, the past while has been uh, a challenging environment. Of course, there was an insurrection less than a mile from where I sit just now this month. Uh, and in the UK, we've had Brexit. Um, Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the Scottish executive, has said she's going to have another independence referendum. Is there, are there any analogous internal stressors that the the, the Australian IC has to like think about or work within? Um, one of the one of the challenges um, that we face is um, prioritisation. Um, in that, um, how do you prioritise um, the threats? Um, some are more obvious than others, but when you have resource implications associated with those priorities, um, it becomes quite challenging because the idea of priorities is quite contestable. Like in the UK, you have the um, the the national risk register which which formalizes your um, prioritization um, when uh, Kevin Rudd was the Prime Minister he produced the first um, national security strategy and that listed priorities but that documents no longer on available on the web so uh, uh, I think prioritization is one of the most important things for me because it it drives effort and um, with limited resources you have to be very careful how you drive effort um, for example, I, I had um, part of my military career, I had two years in special forces and we were putting an enormous amount of money into um, hostage rescue. But um, terrorists weren't uh, holding hostages um, any longer. They were doing other sorts of things. So uh, if you're not careful with priorities, you're constantly playing catch up and fighting the last war or fighting the last contingency. Um, 
it, and I've seen that at other stages in, in my career as well, where um, we're, uh, we're not innovating quickly enough, for example. Um, often when you get a bit comfortable and you're starting to live in a business as usual sort of world and you're enjoying it, it's very hard to break out of that and to become transformative, particularly when there's polls involved. So I think um, at a very fundamental level, prioritization, um, and this is the reason we have now have a DNI to try to uh, lend um, a great emphasis to prioritization and mobilizing these limited resources to achieve asymmetric effects. And one of the things that I found quite interesting, uh, I found that you had said, or, or you used this analogy of go where you think the puck is going to be, don't go where the puck is at the moment. So could you just uh, break that down for us a little bit more? Yeah, well, and sadly, it's not my quote. It's uh, Wayne Gretzky, a famous um, Canadian ice hockey player. But it's always resonated with me. And, and he said, skate to where the puck is going to be. And that's the secret of his success. And that's how I've tried to drive my intelligence career. I've tried to look at um, where an emerging opportunity was and then move to it or prepare myself to be successful in that space. In terms of my career, the most significant pivot I made was to move into the private sector. Um, and I, I returned to the intelligence community and I was a little bit um, disappointed with um, the level of innovation that was at work. Um, so I typed into LinkedIn um, strategy, risk, intelligence, and up popped a job. Um, I put an application in, I got a call on Wednesday. I had to travel to Sydney. I was interviewed in another capital city and I got a phone call on Monday offering me the job. And by the way, could you start the following week? So I had to lift my house and um, move everything and redesign my life. But it was quite a pivot because I saw emerging opportunities in the private sector, particularly at the corporate level and particularly in um, financial services, because um, there are a lot of incumbents that um, weren't sensitive to environmental change. And I mean broader operating environment, not natural environment, and which was an intelligence problem. So I deliberately um, pivoted to that space and that's where this job emerged. So I was skating to where the puck was going to be in a sense, not waiting for change in my community. And I often advise a lot of the people that I mentor is don't see the pathway ahead in a very narrow sense, see it in a very broad sense. And then you'll see more opportunities if you see that. Often the, the uh, uh, people entering the profession think I have to be in a three letter or four letter agency. So I'll leave university, and I'll have my newly minted um, master's uh, degree and then the doors will open for me for these three and four letter agencies. But it just doesn't work that way because everybody's got a master's degree and um, what they're looking for is life experience and, uh, and qualities. So uh, I, my advice is always to, um, uh, just like a hockey player, you don't move to, from a straight line to, the, to your goal mouth. You move through a lot of um, uh, maneuvers to that space. So play, play the longer game. Then you've said that being a generalist was advantageous. Talk, walk us through this generalist versus specialist dichotomy or false dichotomy. Well, um, I'll offer a perspective because it is um, 
it is a contentious issue in the intelligence business. So for example, um, my first real intelligence job was as an imagery analyst, and um, I was looking at um, um, overhead imagery, but I was um, looking through a stereoscope, um, a physical one, and I was winding the film. Some people in the audience might remember these days, um, but now in the geospatial intelligence space, you really need data science credentials. So sometimes the debate between um, generalist and specialist um, depends on which part of the community you're in, what you're working on at the moment, and what point in time are you at. Um, technological development has certainly um, favoured um, specialisms, but um, when we work in a team, um, you can have a, a mix of generalists and specialists in the team. So I think if we're talking about a team-based approach, then you want a mix of them. Um, from a career point of view, for example, um, uh, I did every course I could possibly do, so I could stick my hand up and say, yes, I can talk about signals intelligence, or yes, I can talk about um, intelligence support to joint operations, or yes, I can talk about um, uh, nuclear intelligence, um, but I never, uh, I never worked in those safe spaces, so to speak. So I think when I say generalist, I also mean an informed generalist. Once again, I was very lucky. My, when my first introduction into the intelligence business, um, I was at a cycle in terms of postings. So they put me for a year at the uh, intelligence school and uh, I spent a year of intensive study doing every long course possible. And most of my peers would take them or 15 years have completed all of those courses because they'd, they'd go away and then come back and do a course and go away and come back. Um, I also met, we only had about 300 people in the Australian Intelligence Corps at that time. I met a large number of them because they all came through the school. Once again, um, it might take you 10 or 15 years to end up meeting most of the people um, in your uh, community. So I, I, was very, uh, I was very lucky. Um, so the first lesson I took away when you asked me to reflect on my career is um, either be educated about intelligence or get educated about intelligence. And often um, you're the person most responsible for that education. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. And another, I mean, one of the other things that I find quite interesting about your career is that you've You've just worked across such a wide variety of domains. So you've done military intelligence, criminal intelligence, business intelligence, futures intelligence. 
Looking back on that, which one of them was the happiest part of your career, just for the intelligence component of it? Um, I think they were good at different times. Um, certainly, when I was introduced to the intelligence business, um, I loved military intelligence. Um, when I got into law enforcement intelligence, um, we were looking at uh, emerging threats. And uh, I was quite fascinated with this because I hadn't done that. And this is when I first um, developed my love of strategic foresight um, as an activity. Uh, when I was working in business competitive intelligence, that was also very exciting as well because um, we had people who are hungry for information and they wanted that information. Sometimes uh, in the community, you might produce a report, but no one reads it. Um, you might think it's an incredibly valuable piece of intelligence, but m my argument is I, I don't think intelligence has any intrinsic value whatsoever, intelligence products. Its um, value is as perceived by the client. So um, in terms of what I've favoured, uh, I, I think over my career, I've gravitated towards um, uh, futures intelligence because um, it's probably the most important part of people's lives, their future. So they need to know something about it. And there are approaches. Many of the, the fundamental intelligence practices I learned 40 years ago are, are highly relevant to um, futures work. And there's so much uncertainty in our, in our VUCA context at the moment that uh, people are asking, you know, what is happening? How, 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 do, how do I make sense of what is happening? So um, uh, I've seen sort of, in my career, this move uh, in the early days from um, there are things we don't know, go out and find them, uh, to sense-making world where we find ourselves at the moment, where each day we're trying to make a more accurate map of the world and improving on it. So there's no answer, so to speak. You intervene in a complex system, you change the system and you change the problem you're confronting. So it's a different way of looking at the challenges. So I think um, in, in a, a very long answer to your very good question is um, at the moment I'm um, desperately madly in love with um, futures intelligence. You know we have a mixture of people that you know are inside baseball um, and some people that are approaching it from a layman's position just sketch out what futures intelligence is. There's there's an enormous um, body of knowledge on strategic foresight um, but I think some of the most, and there are different categories of intelligence we, we talk about, descriptive, explanatory, and estimative and warning, for example, is one form of categorization. But um, certainly, as I've reflected on intelligence practice, time is one of the most vital dimensions um, that we should look along. Um, things could, for example, in the innovation space, um, we don't talk about um, next year or next years or next 10 years because a disruptive change could suddenly bring the future right into your face. So um, uh, in terms of futures intelligence, what we're looking at is um, the dynamics. Um, uh, we, you know, we're told that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So you're trying to understand that rhyme at play in, the, um, in an operational space. In a futures world too, that's punctuated by um, unknown unknowns. So um, there's a fascinating intellectual challenge in um, getting into futures intelligence. We're trying to allow people um, to understand the future to the extent that they can make a decision today that will impact on the future.
So we don't wait till that future to emerge to make a decision. We're trying to learn from the future, so to speak, and bring the future into today to make better decisions today for a better tomorrow. And that's the, the essence of futures intelligence. So once again, we're in a decision support mode, which is central. Um, the client is, um, is vitally important. It's a client-centric practice. There's an enormous toolkit that's been developed, um, so you can spend a lot of your time mastering many of these tools. Uh, Everyone is concerned about their future from a single person to a large corporation. So um, it's a, it's an area of intelligence practice I would encourage um, younger people to move into quickly because um, even if you're not um, working uh, in, a, in a job that is solely concerned with, the, with futures intelligence, um, some part of your intelligence support will be about the future or the futures that you confront. So I'd certainly encourage people to um, look into this space. And as a, as a historian, one of the things that interested me there was the, the way that we look at the past or our use of the past. So I know that some people are, you know, they, some people have the point of view that, you know, if you're constantly looking at the past, you're, you're not going to see these dreadnought moments, you're not going to see these moments when everything shifts and changes, or, or, or there can even just be a, a set in terms of sensibility. I remember reading Shimon Perez and uh, a book that he, that he wrote, uh, I think it's called Battling for Peace. It was a few years ago I read it, but he says, um, I'm sure he says in that book, I get quite irritated by people that are constantly looking at the past because it means that you're, you know, it can also be like a weight on your shoulders. So there's there's that kind of skill, and then and then there's the other skill that's well, I mean, we can only look at that's the only thing we've got to go on. We don't know what the future is. We know what's happening now, and our past is the only way to contextualize where we are now and to maybe give us, you know, not in any kind of programmatic way, but that's the only thing that we can look to to try to understand the future. So, you know, as as a practitioner, as an educator, how do you think of that that relationship? Well, imagine a turkey as an historian. Um, the turkey is looking back on the last three hundred days and is saying, "The world is really good to me. I'm spoiled rotten. They feed me incredibly well." And then we reach a point where the past is no longer a teacher of the future. Um, particularly on Thanksgiving Day. So um, uh, uh, I think history has a role. As I said, I, I think time is one of the most important dimensions. And um, there are archetypes in history. And I think if we look at history in terms of archetypes, rather than say facts, and uh, we find many archetypes appearing um, in the future as well. There'll be there'll be conflict, it's part of the human nature. Uh, I was reading this fantastic quote from Voltaire just this morning and he said uh, if we're able to teach people absurdities or convince them of absurdities we can force that we can we can uh, we can encourage them to commit atrocities and this is Voltaire and this happened uh, on the 6th of January in Washington DC so um, I think history is vitally important but um, the future necessarily the same as the past um, and we look at intelligence um, failure, for example, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, perhaps one of the most 
dramatic ones. People were calling for for a long time, but we didn't necessarily know um, a date. Uh, I remember. <laughs> I remember when I was last in the community going to Washington for a visit and it was just um, after um, uh, the Arab Spring had concluded and I was talking with a, a futures group that was part of the NIC and they were saying the advice to Obama um, just prior to this was that Mubarak had a job for life. So um, uh, I think in a VUCA world where we can have asymmetric um, nth order effects, um, then uh, we have to be careful about history, particularly near-term history. Um, but uh, if we look at history in the broader landscape and can pick up rhymes and archetypes, then I think it's very powerful. Give us an example of one of those archetypes that you have thought been thinking about recently. Um, well, in the futures, um, space there's um, from an organizational context there, there's there's about five archetypes um, for and this is just these are just models um, you know all models are lies but some models are useful as George Box said but um, uh, you have a business as usual archetype where you'll find an organization will just continue to do what it's doing well um, and like like a herd of lemmings it will go over the cliff one quarter financial results at a time. Um, there's another archetype where people recognize the imperative for um, transformative change and break out of BAU and go to success. This is classic example of this was Bill Gates in 1995 when he thought the internet was a fad. And, uh, and then when Wall Street said uh, he had no internet strategy, and the Microsoft um, uh, profits slid, or the share price slid dramatically, Gates overnight turned that company around and everything was about the net. And everything had to operate through the net and with the net and with each other. So that's an example of that archetype at play. Uh, another archetype is that um, we confront a crisis and then decline as a result of that crisis. And another archetype is we confront a crisis and recover from that crisis. And you'll find if you look in the in the business world, in the, in the private sector, you find all of those archetypes at work. So um, you have to understand um, the operating environment you're working in, then which archetype you are dealing with, and then that becomes the basis for strategy. So there's a tight linkage I find between foresight work risk-based work and um, strategy work and I, there's a connection um, from private sector point of view if you engage a corporation at any of those points then you find you can uh, work to those other points as well of course i'm presenting a highly simplified version of this um, given our space and time i could wax lyrical with a whiteboard in several hours <laughs> sure. Uh, your quote there reminded me of, I think it was Eisenhower, he said, plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of my favourite quotes too. And uh, It's true. It's And it, we find this at the heart of sense-making practice. Um, uh, David Moore wrote about this in, a, uh, in an American intelligence practitioner, um, that uh, it's the conversation that emerges around whiteboards or artifacts that are far more important to advance, to advance our understanding rather than necessarily documenting some sort of answer. For example, I'm 
currently involved in um, building a risk intelligence practice in a large corporate. And um, I said our business is emerging issues. And uh, my staff have said, well, what are they? And I said, we don't know. You know, so um, this is this is the heart of sense making. You know, we will build a map of the territory, and um, each day we'll make that map better and better. So each day decisions by executives could potentially become better and better as well. So uh, here in the United States, Larry King died recently, yeah, and he was quite right. yeah he was quite famous for never never having read the 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 book or never having boned up on what the guest was going to be talking about so i've tried to do some boning up but on on a larry king kind of sensibility where he tried to put himself in the shoes of the person that that doesn't that hasn't boned up just tell us a lot just for a, a minute or so what sense making and an intelligence context yeah yeah that's a really good question. Um, as I said, there um, have have been some. Uh, it it was really turned by a guy called Carl Vick, um, W E I C K, and uh, his work on sense making in organisations. And um, he noted that in organisations, many people were looking at yesterday's performance and adding ten percent on and, and projecting into the future, um, and he found that um, there had to be a better way of doing it. And there, of course, there are different schools of sense-making. Um, there are very um, people-centered schools. There are uh, individual-centered schools, um, uh, group-centered schools. Um, so I'll, I'll just talk from a point of practice rather than necessarily theory. But in fact, as I said, um, David T. Moore uh, in the US community wrote a very good book on sense-making and intelligence. And I think I have it on my bookshelf. Um, somewhere here yep you can download it online and he actually applied a lot of the theory of sense making to intelligence practice so if someone's very interested in that i'd commend that to it i'd commend them to that but essentially um we are looking at if you can imagine a um uh, a, a, a four quadrants um two dimensions juxtaposed and you've got four quadrants and you're starting at the bottom left hand corner at the bottom is the real world and at the top is the abstract world the world of thought and ideas uh, and on the left hand side is uh, issues around analysis breaking it down into its pieces on the right hand side is synthesis so one model that I use for sense making is that we enter the bottom left seeing the world we move into the abstract we break that world down and look at the relationship between all of the pieces. Then we move them in different sorts of combinations and move across the hand side, the synthesis in the abstract world. And then we have a new way of seeing the world. And then we move down back into the real world and we communicate that new view of the world. Um, and that's, that's the essence of, of um, sense making. Um, we find it's very, very important. Uh, when I pivoted into the corporate world, I moved into the strategic innovation space. And that was about um, trying to make an organization more transformative. And it was, I 
I was recruited to bring an intelligence-led approach because it's incredibly information intensive. You're trying to understand the environment. So the whole office that we developed was surrounded by whiteboards. And we spent much of our day um, collecting weak signals about changes in the world and trying to make sense of them. We turned them into arguments for change of the organization. Then we would design experiments to explore some of the hypotheses in those, in those arguments for change. And then we would actually develop business models or move towards the development of business models that could operationalize that new way of seeing the world and then provide that to the board as a, as a cycle of change. So sense-making was vitally important to us because um, the world doesn't stand still. Uh, when I first started intelligence practice in 78, we had good guys and bad guys. We had red and blue. We had threat equals intent by capability, which is a formula from the 50s that worked quite well then, but doesn't work in the 2000s. Um, uh, and and uh, that was the end of the Vietnam War. So the dominant thinking was counterinsurgency. And when I left military intelligence, it was um, the start of the cyber age. Um, it was completely different. So, um, and then going into a strategic innovation space where you, um, uh, you, were, you were trying not only identifying weak signals, but you were trying to do a better job of doing it than the other company that was trying to transform as well. So there was a competitive, so it was a warfare innovation sense, I suppose. And just thinking about your career, so you joined the Australian army in 1978 and left in 1994, uh, I believe as the deputy director for military intelligence. Is that, is that That's right? That's correct. Could, yeah. could you tell us a little bit more about what that, well, firstly about the narrative arc from 78 to becoming the deputy director? And secondly, what, what kind of things were you up to as the deputy director for military intelligence in 1994? It was one of my um, better jobs in the military um, and it gave me a, a very deep understanding of what we mean by capability. For example, you don't see much written about intelligence capability. Even our 2017 independent review undertaken here talks about capability in terms of technology and people um, and more about technology and less about people. Um, as Deputy Director of Military Intelligence, we had um, multiple, um, I had wore many hats in that job. Part of my job was um, Deputy Director of Military Intelligence. Um, a large part of it was uh, intelligence capability development. And when I first took over the job, I saw we had these multiple projects at play. We're improving our psychological operations capability over here. We're improving our counterintelligence capability over here. We're growing our people by moving them along different pathways to give them different sorts of experience. But it wasn't being brought together. So that was a powerful insight from that appointment was how to realize capability. And I was very much influenced by uh, John Boyd's work on the UDA cycle, uh, where I saw the different components of capability were moving around the UDA cycle at different speeds. Capability only exists when all of these elements are together. So I used that model to conceptualize uh, an intelligence capability development program where these things were integrated and synchronized together. So that was the big insight out of it. And it's taken me um, 25 years to write a paper about it. I've just have an article forthcoming in our APO journal on a conceptual framework for intelligence capability. So keep an eye out for that. In terms of my career through the military, it was, it was quite traditional, but because I 
applied the Wayne Gretzky principle, I always stuck up my hand for interesting or different sorts of jobs. So I didn't lead a traditional um, pathway. For example, um, I spent a year in Outback Australia conducting a trial of unmanned aerial vehicles. We didn't have any in the military at the time. And because I had a reconnaissance and surveillance background, they gave me this job of, so we got some equipment from a provider around the world and did all of these experiments in the Outback and wrote a big report. And now we find we have multiple UAV platforms uh, in the Australian Defence Force, for example. Uh, and that job came up um, just by me being a sticky beak and sticking my nose into places probably shouldn't have. And then who could do this job? And I said, well, I could do that. Um, and this is what I mean about skating um, uh, to possibility. I could see that um, reconnaissance surveillance were becoming vitally important in uh, in our future context because of danger into platforms. So that was one of the things that, that moved me towards that particular space. But I wouldn't have been qualified to do that unless I had interested in um, uh, the reconnaissance and surveillance training earlier. Um, and I had two years in Special Forces, although I never jumped out of a helicopter. Uh, I was at Army Staff College and um, w uh, the most important day at Army Staff College is when your next posting is put in your letterbox and everyone has a letterbox and there's a hundred odd letterboxes and at morning tea they announce it and everyone sprints across from morning tea to the letterbox to find their posting and I pulled mine and it said you're going to headquarters special force and uh, I'm as far from a chicken strangler as someone could be I'm a backroom um, analyst kind of guy and uh, it just so happened that the commander of special forces was visiting that day and I caught him quietly over a coffee in the afternoon I said look has there been some mistake uh, I'm being posted to headquarters special forces and uh, it turned out that um, because I asked difficult sorts of questions and it had been noted uh, the commander had asked special forces had asked for somebody who thought a little bit differently so the uh, the head of the staff college uh, said well you need someone like Pepler you know he does think a bit differently because in a special forces context it, if you have a headquarters full of special forces people, they tend to see the world in a certain way. And he was aware of this risk and that was his mitigate it. But once again, um, you've got to have the courage of your convictions and ask difficult questions and then be noticed for it. That might scare some people. And I know there's a lot of ground to cover between 94 and today, but give us a, an overview of your activities since you left the Australian Army. I think there's um, probably three phases of activity. The first um, uh, 18 odd years in the military. Uh, second phase of um, transition where I worked in different domains of intelligence practice, for example, in law enforcement. Um, uh, I, as a consultant in intelligence services, I had over 40 clients, all with a different uh, intelligence sort of problem they needed solving. Um, so I saw fundamental um, fun pr principles that were fundamental that were at play regardless of domain of practice. And then the third phase was probably when I pivoted into the corporate world and um, have now uh, stayed in the corporate world, but once again in a, in a consultant. So they're the three broad phases. We've spoken a bit about the military phase. Um, the second phase, this transitional phase, I was very lucky uh, once again, to find a greenfield opportunity, I sought out this position 
it was a new agency. I was the first analyst recruited. We had no legacy systems, no legacy craft, and um, we were working in strategic law enforcement. Um, the hassle was that, once again, John Boyd, thank you very much, the criminals were moving faster around the OODA loop than um, uh, legislation was. Um, so our job was to look five years in advance because um, it usually took three to five years for um, legislation to be converted into policy, to be converted into impact on the ground. And if you wanted to impact the criminal environment, you really needed to be skating to where the puck is going to be. So what is that criminal environment going to look like in five years? And that's how you bring the future into today. So that was the role of that agency. Um, and we're very lucky to have the first director who said, um, just go away and do it and be innovative and try new things. So here we were in the early 90s doing Delphi's by fax, using system dynamics um, modeling, um, using um, uh, matrix wargaming to try to get deeper insights about the future. So this is very, very influential on my thinking. And uh, But once again, I, I stated to where I thought an emerging opportunity was. It was far better than I thought it would be. Very influential. And then I went into the university sector and um, uh, I was just reflecting on the previous 25 years and I was given the job of developing um, postgraduate intelligence program. And it was the first fully articulated intelligence postgraduate program in Australia. So I was able to just reflect back on those many years immediately after this um, law enforcement experience uh, where we were innovating um, out of the wazoo to, to just try different approaches to get into the future. So um, I very much enjoyed that experience. Uh, as I said, I then went consulting and every day was a new challenge, um, but a different and an exciting challenge. The good thing about being a consultant, you can sack your boss. So um, once again, I, I tiptoed through those opportunities and, and grabbed the ones I liked and um, I found I had accumulated so much insight that was beyond what I'd read in the textbooks. And uh, so I went back into the community and tried to bring a lot of this uh, into practice. And I set up um, a long range uh, unit or was involved in the setting up of a long range unit um, to look um, 30 years into the future. We're looking at supporting um, defense planning and the defense white paper process. Um, and we're doing some very interesting things with risk um, so that got me interested in risk and then that's when I pivoted in a third stage to the corporate world. So I brought um, almost serendipitously the critical competencies I needed for the corporate world had just been accumulated as I was entering this new strategic innovation space. So in a lot of ways I find myself lucky but I, I think it's more retrospective coherence than, um, uh, than um, design. What book or couple of books have you found most informative or, or most insightful in terms of the way that you've thought about the world? Wow. Um, yeah, if you could see my um, um, room here, it's surrounded by books. So I'm a, in fact, my wife is not allowing me to buy any more books. So um, I got a Kindle last Christmas and um, I can only buy uh, electronic books and store them on the Kindle. I'm at physical risk um, of injury from these books collapsing on top of me. So to pull out a few would be a little bit challenging. Um, at the moment, I'm um, reading um, 
quite a bit about um, business model innovation where you change the underlying model for what makes the business successful. And I think this is how you bring about systemic change uh, in an organization. And, and there's some great work out of a company called Strategizer. Uh, so I'm reading these days a lot more books and I tweet for the Australian Institute of Professional Intelligence Officers. So um, I tend to get a lot of my uh, current cutting edge thinking from the Twitterverse, particularly where um, theorists point you into interesting cutting edge sort of thinking. Um, in, in, uh, in terms of the futures work, one of the most influential books I read was The Art of the Long View by Peter Schwartz. Uh, and I had the pleasure of meeting him in Singapore many years ago, and I happened to have my copy of the book with me and got him to sign it. Um, and he was uh, quite chuffed because it was a very limited print run and it was an obscure shaped book. So uh, he was surprised to see that. But I commend that to anyone if you wanted to, to go to some of the startup thinking. In terms of um, uh, intelligence work, I think some of the most cutting edge stuff is um, out of the journals. I think we need to read very, very widely and then principles will start to emerge that seem to occur in multiple domains of practice. I call myself an intellectual beachcomber. I try to move across as many different disciplines as I can and extract the bits that, that I can bring into my practice. So it's in that space between theory and practice, that praxis um, space that's most important. I think you've got to read widely and get many, many different experiences to um, to be effective in that space. And another thing that I was wondering is, is there any anything that you think is important to touch upon that we haven't looked at thus far? Again, I realise we could easily talk uh, talk until next Australia Day, but um, yeah, I wonder yeah. if the, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to bring something in that I may have overlooked. Um, what, one area I wouldn't mind plugging is the issue of professionalisation. Um, for example, uh, I joined our institute here in Australia in 1992, just after it was established, and a lot of my efforts in support of that institute have been towards professionalising practice. Um, uh, and I joined IAFI, the International Association for Intelligence Education, um, um, uh, about 10 years after that, when it, uh, after it started to, uh, to, to support the role of professionalisation through education as well. So we haven't talked a lot about professionalisation. Certainly when I was in the public sector intelligence space, I, I saw the distinction between career and intelligence and an intelligence career. And a lot of people were parachuting into the intelligence space as a policy officer or something like that, and then exiting later to be promoted or something like that. And I saw that dynamic many, many times. And in fact, I had a boss once who used to boast that he'd never had a day of intelligence training, and he was an intelli senior intelligence manager in one particular organization. So um, that's one of the reasons I left the community for the second time. Um, <laughs> so I'm a firm advocate of professionalization through um, education and training and experience. Um, there's, a, there's a model, the 70-20-10 model, that's um, quite popular in the corporate speak where, you know, um, only 10% 
of our learning is through formal processes, 20% through um, some form of um, uh, master-servant relationship, and the other 70% is uh, on the job. So we need to be as um, hungry for knowledge as possible, but do it in a very structured kind of way to make most effective use of your time. Um, so professionalisation is vitally important. Um, with the Institute here in Australia at the moment, we're um, uh, developing um, uh, certification standards and we'll be issuing digital certificates to ensure that people not only members, but they do the appropriate amount of um, development, professional development to stay effective in a changing world. IAFI already has certification programs. They certify um, programs that we'll be looking at certifying individuals as well. And I think uh, one thing that uh, many of our listeners are in North America, and I think a lot of them would be interested to know if you're willing to share it. How did you uh, end up meeting your wife from Green Bay in Wisconsin? Well, um, she was in fact here in Australia teaching intelligence and national security at one of our universities and she had joined the Australian Institute of Professional Intelligence Officers and um, it was a dark and stormy night and um, and then um, we um, we and when I moved to Sydney, um, she was in fact in Sydney. So um, we decided to get married and I traveled to the States twice a year for the last um, six or seven years. Um, of course, COVID has prevented us. We have a house over in the States in Green Bay, big Green oh, Bay wow. Packers fan. Um, and the interesting thing, when I was there in uh, 80, uh, 88, 89, working in the Defense Intelligence Agency's integrated officer, um, it was a very busy time and I didn't have a lot of time for travel, which was unfortunate. So um, this has allowed me to travel far more broadly in the States and to see the many different aspects of American life that you don't appreciate if you only work in Washington, D.C. <laughs> uh, in Australia, I think there's a misconception about the States where people think it's one country, but it's uh, very, very complex and uh, same land mass as us, um, another order of magnitude of population size and um, longer history and it's a very very interesting and complex place so I always love going back to the States. And you've been to Lambeau uh, Field? <laughs> yes and that's got a fantastic um, restaurant upstairs there I recommend that and made the pilgrimage. Um, I've even done got a cheese head hat to wear I'm back in the States <laughs> so I feel suitably attired when I attend these sorts of functions. Um. <laughs> well thanks so much for taking to speak to me Brett it's been uh, really interesting and a lot of fun and thank you very much for the invitation Andrew um, uh, and thanks for having an Australian speak on Australia Day and I think understand it's might be your first Australian speaker you've had at this International Spy Museum. Uh, always visit the International Spy Museum um, when we go to DC. So um, I haven't been to your new place yet. So looking forward to that on the next trip. Yeah, you you really enjoy it. We've tripled our exhibition space and the amounts of artifacts wow. that we can display. So, so there's a lot to get your teeth into. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.